ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this, the latest edition of The Problem with Reading. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. And I'm Steven. And uh, all of our other friends have abandoned us, so it's just us two this week. Uh, here, hanging out, uh, talking about McIntyre Chapter 5. Just us two, as if we're not enough. Yeah, we are, we're enough for you, vast swath of listening public who listen to us. Yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, uh, Steven, uh, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I've gotten over my cold, which I was pretty uh, pretty happy for for that development. Being able to breathe through my nostrils again is mm. is just excellent. It's perfect. It How is something. Yourself? Yeah. Well, I mean, breathing through nostrils is is, is something that humans have been known to do. And uh, in fact, do you partake in breathing through your nostrils as well? I do. I do. I, I I try and keep it to the weekends just so I don't overindulge. Um, That's a good point. It, it can become addictive. Yeah. Yeah. It. It is somewhat hard to breathe while while eating food um, and and not breathing through nostrils or underwater. Yeah, yeah. So you know it's complicated, but you know something, something. Life is suffering, and we have to push yeah, through it. And... Well, you just need to make sure that you control the breathing instead of the breathing controlling you. That's yeah. Damn, that is is so true. You know, breathing is a wonderful tool, but a terrible taskmaster. That's that's mm. what I learned from David Foster Wallace. Oh man, now you're speaking my language. Okay, just you wait for my rant. You're going to love it. Um, but before oh, we boy. get there, uh, Stephen, what, what are you drinking right now? Well, I'm, I'm sticking with uh, last year's specialty of uh, some tea, except this time it's a, uh, a fruit tea. I'm not exactly sure which fruit, probably all of them, uh, with, uh, again, a bit of honey and just a splash of bourbon. Mm, damn. You just have, you have the most classy drinks. Oh, I thank you, sir. Yeah, uh, as, as for myself, I'm having a bit of beer, uh, some Steel Reserve High Gravity, uh, slow brewed. It's pretty good, and I'm having it in a lovely glass that my wife's cousin gave me. He gave me a full set of uh, like beer glasses for... Oh, are uh, these like beer steins or...? Uh, not not steins, but more like elegant, like sort of long and thin uh, beer. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and, that's, that's the best way to, to go about drinking beer. And, and and like a chalice if I ever get stout, so it's it's quite nice. Like stout and chalice, chalice. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, this is Cameron we're talking about, and he makes it himself. Oh, that's right, he does homebrew, doesn't he? Yeah, so he's uh he's very much on top of it. Well, uh, speaking of being on top of things, uh, how about this chapter five from our main man McIntyre, where he just goes off on this whole enlightenment thing i you know i i hadn't really heard about this enlightenment or modernity before i started reading this book but you know i'm starting to think that maybe it wasn't that great of an idea you know well it's funny that you should mention that so i especially pre i'll say junior year of college but even kind of through junior year of college i was honestly a pretty big fan of the enlightenment i never quite understood why all my philosophy and theology profs were always hating on it um i mean it's it really did appeal to kind of the the rationalist in me, the the competition in me, it, you know, the, the project of wanting to be able to perfectly order every single piece of life, including your, you know, your your philosophy. That's just like, well, yeah, let's use our reason. Awesome. 
And then I read particularly chapter five. I think it was chapter four and chapter five of After Virtue, my senior year. And all of a sudden, it just, the light bulb, it was immediately, oh, this is why people don't like the Enlightenment. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, the my my general impression of chapter five, um, which he's been building up to, I think at least a little bit, is that if it's true, it's exceedingly significant. I was talking about McIntyre with Sam uh, over the phone offline, and he just questioning whether or not McIntyre is uh, what I would call a totalizing argument. You know, an, an argument that takes all possible concepts and phrases and can interpret it and give out the correct answer. So it's, it's something that has an answer for everything. So it's a, it's an ideology in the sense, in a strong sense in that you cannot ever confuse it. It will always know what the answer is. It will never adapt to new information being presented. Um, It is a framework as it should be. That is to say it's fully composed and kind of all all encompassing in that whatever, well, precisely what you said, whatever, whatever, value you input into it it will always have an output right or wrong it will at least remain internally consistent yeah i i generally have a negative view of those types of systems you know such as marxism Mm -hmm. for example that absorbs everything into a story of materialism and labor for example or Mm -hmm. you know or at least some some forms of, of of marxism at least i think there's a healthy skepticism that should come with something that claims to well kind of claims to know everything or have an answer for everything for sure yeah um but what i think is so and i argued against this because i think what mcintyre's project is at least in part is that he does make his argument historically grounded and that is the core that makes his argument different from other arguments that try and cover similar ground as to whatever the, you know, seed of problems and discord at the heart of Western civilization. Uh, I think you prepared a, a short summary or at least a summary short or not of chapter five. I, have, I can't, I can't make any guarantees on the length, but I do have a, a small summary or a, a summary at the very least. All right. Well, light on us. Right on. Okay. So first he, he suggests that um, the, all the, the philosophers that he, or the, at least the big philosophers that he's been discussing, Kant, Kierkegaard, Hume, Diderot, that they at least agree largely on the character of morality um, and quote, agree also upon what a rational justification of morality would have to be. Its key premises would explain, would characterize some feature or features of human nature and the rules of morality would then be explained and justified as being these, those rules which a being possessing of such a human nature could be expected to accept. In essence, they all accept this common ideology, but what he's teasing out is that they're missing one vital piece. Um, Quote, Thus all these writers share in the project of constructing valid arguments, which will move from premises concerning human nature as they understand it to be, to conclusions about the authority of moral rules and precepts. I, I being McIntyre, want to argue that any project of this form was bound to fail because of an in, ineradicable discrepancy between their shared conception of moral rules and precepts on the one hand and what was shared in the conception of human nature on the other. So from here, he launches, he kind of rewinds and goes to ethics as it was being Aristotle's Nicomachean ethics and discusses how these ethics were of a fundamentally different form because they consisted of three primary parts. Uh, Quote, within that teleological scheme, there is a fundamental contrast between man as he happens to be 
and man as he could be if he realized his essential nature. Ethics is a science which is to innate which is to enable men to understand how they can make the transition from the former state to the latter. Ethics, therefore, in this view, presupposes some account of potentiality and act, some account of the essence of man as a rational animal, and above all, some account of the human talos. So he he is discussing right now Aristotle and kind of up through the Middle Ages, so a lot of classical theism, primarily Western, so Judaism and Christianity, the theologians, of that era. And he is making the claim that there is, in essence, a, a triangle of ethics, uh, that that ethics relies on three main premises. Uh, one, untutored human nature as it happens to be. Two, human nature as it could be if it realized its telos. And three, the precepts of rational ethics as a means for the transition from one to the other. Now, here is where we enter enlightenment. And according to McIntyre, this is kind of where things go pear-shaped. Because with Enlightenment thinking, and primarily Pascal is kind of the, the uh, forerunner of this, he brings the idea that reason is only belonging to the realm of means. Quote, reason is calculative. It can assess truths of facts and mathematical relations, but nothing more. In the realm of practice, therefore, it can only speak of means. About ends, it must be silent. And so once you kind of remove this idea of ends, all of a sudden you're attacking the second premise, the human nature, as it could be if it realized its telos. Quote, but the joint effect of secular rejection of both Protestant and Catholic theology and the scientific and philosophical rejection of Aristotelianism was to eliminate any notion of man as he could be if he realized his telos. So this is in essence taking ethics, taking one of the primary premises that ethics rested upon and getting rid of it, which is pretty much the disaster that, that McIntyre was describing all the way back after one that ethics, the field of ethics, has been fundamentally different after that second premise was removed. Uh, quote, Since the whole point of ethics is to enable man to pass from his present state to his true end, the elimination of any notion of essential human nature and with it the abandonment of any notion of a telos leaves behind a moral scheme composed of two remaining elements whose relationship becomes quite un unclear. And from here, we we have kind of what we, we already discussed in the fourth chapter, but ethics just simply, quite simply falls apart. Um, we don't know where we're going, and therefore any moral prescriptions become somewhat empty of meaning. Uh, one may say, this is the right thing to do, but there is no way to go into the, and therefore you must do it. Uh, so this kind of, we find ourselves in the wasteland that McIntyre described us, that ethics, it just the, the fundamental language of ethics is similar to back in the day, traditional ethics, but the meaning behind it is completely vapid. Uh, last quote, up to the present in everyday discourse, the habit of speaking of moral judgments as true or false persists, but the question of what it is in virtue of which a particular moral judgment is true or false has come to lack any clear answer. That this should be so is perfectly intelligible if the historical hypothesis which I have sketched is true, that moral judgments are linguistic survivals from the practices of classical theism which have lost the context provided by these practices. This, this chapter is the explanation for where we were in the state of ethics and how we got to kind of this, this more shabby state of ethics. That is in essence uh, chapter five, where we were where we're at and how we got here and how it was inevitable that the project of the Enlightenment should fail 
given that they removed that second premise, human nature, as it could be if it realized it's Talos. So let me try and resummarize it in a different way and see if this is accurate. Hume, Kant, and Kierkegaard all were trying to build ethical systems about how we should behave. All of them had vaguely similar conclusions about what the proper types of actions were. However, they all had different ways of reaching those conclusions. Hume said through the emotions, Kant said through pure reason, and Kierkegaard said, well, you just have to choose you know, with force of will. Each of them also had negative arguments that did a pretty good job of canceling out each of the other people's arguments, um, and we continue with those to this day. Next, McIntyre makes the argument that they each had the same conclusions about what morality should end up looking like because they inherited it from the predecessor culture, the predecessor generation, which was functionally and imperfectly Aristotelian in its view, which had three steps of humanity, which are man in its unrealized, untutored state, the end goal of man that is the that the telos man reaching his telos, and finally the ethics, the rules that would help you move from point A to point B. And all of them, for various reasons, discarded the final endpoint, and so have an irresolvable conflict between the first step of people in their untutored states from which they're trying to derive moral rules. But that doesn't work, which is why all of them fail in the end. Precisely. They're, they're missing that very important end game of ethics. It, it's like playing, playing a game where points are now meaningless. Um, or, mm-hmm. uh, well, or going on a hike where you have no idea where you're, where you're, where you're going to Maybe that last might not be the best analogy, but in, <laughs> in, in essence, they, they are missing a fundamental necessity for the, the practice of ethics to begin according to McIntyre, which I, I'm inclined to agree. And so then the end point where we end up today is simply arguments and re-arguments, combinations and recombinations of these three philosophers and you know all of the derivatives in every direction but that never go back and resolve this problem because they all come from not necessarily a poison tree but they all come from a tree with certain assumptions that they've never moved past so they're always stuck repeating the original mistake which i i will say it's actually kind of a testament how powerful ethics as traditional ethics aristotle uh how powerful they were the fact that even what 400 years after the Enlightenment project really, you know, took an axe to the enlight or to the ethics tree, it's impressive the fact that we still have these. We we still have the language of ethics as it should be. That we still have the precepts of ethics as it should be. We just we we, we kind of we we've just lost why why the the process would work, or we've lost a fundamental part of it. But that still, the old system of ethics was powerful enough to at least survive, albeit in a very twisted form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other part of chapter five that I really liked was the where he's just sort of redefending the basic Aristotelian ethics and arguing against the idea that you know Hume's law that you can't derive ought from is um, is not universal um, if valid at all. Talking about um, he's specifically talks about uh, the watch and the farmer and that if you say this is a watch or this is a good watch a watch is a watch because it performs the function that a watch does and if it doesn't perform that function then it is a bad watch and maybe not even a watch at all and so the saying the 
describing the function of any particular watch, such as it is consistent, it lasts for a long time, it keeps accurate time down to, to the millisecond, you can infer from those that this is a good watch because it performs the functions that a watch does, and that doesn't require any more steps. And the same thing with a farmer. Um, and I think this might actually tie back to what he's talking about with characters, because I we talked about, I think, in episode two, about the characters that McIntyre wants to talk about. Right, and... the character of the bureaucrat, the clinician, or the clinical psychologist, and there was one other, I believe. Was yes, but... Yeah, but but even before that, he's he's also emphasizing the importance of roles in a society and what those can tell us about how we are to live. I, I think one of his comments are, we no longer know what it is to say that someone has lived a good life because we don't have any paradigms for people to fill. And so, you know, if, for example, a person had a paradigm such as a farmer, we could know what it is to be a good farmer. You could know how to do that. But as he gets to right at the end of chapter five, and I might this might be more my interpretation, but because we've dispensed with the idea that there's a t- that there's a telos, that there's an end to humans, that there's a proper way of in, of enacting those, we create this new thing, this amorphous, ambiguous thing that's the individual that is free from any particular role, from any particular telos, and can kind of bounce around in between, you know the shadowed pale remains of the stronger ones that used to exist. I think that's a, that's a very good way of describing that the situation that we found ourselves in. If, if we have no concept of humanity as it could be, or a, a man or a woman as they could be, were they in their absolutely ideal state, um, almost, almost platonic with that, then we have no way of knowing how to become better, how to become worse. And so the whole enterprise of ethics becomes a bunch of actions without any end goal, without mm-hmm. any meaning. Uh, yeah, completely directionless. Yeah. Quite the situation, quite the metaphysical wasteland. Quite quite the metaphysical wasteland, the alternative title for this podcast. Well, speaking of a, of a wasteland, to, to transition to our, our next segment, which is uh, the article of the week, something that we found that we enjoyed reading. Uh, the one that I found for this week is called uh, How... M- M- Wow, let me try again. How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And surprisingly, this is from BuzzFeed News. I feel like they died uh, to all of the other clickbaity things that arose after them. They were the signature one. But this is actually a good piece of writing that I found very informative, that I identified with in numerous ways. Um, So I'm just going to run through it real quick with a couple quotes. The premise of it starts with this question, which is... I. Quote, I couldn't figure out why small, straightforward tasks on my to-do list felt so impossible, and that the answer is both more complex and far simpler than I imagined, end, end quote. To recap briefly, millennials are people who are more or less between the ages of 22 and 38, depending on your definition. Uh, they generally have a bad rap. You know, they're considered lazy. Um, they have different words that they use, which I know I've personally used, such as uh, adulting, which is, you know, just a catch-all for the tasks of self-sufficient existence. And the other just sort of lays out the problem first, talking about errand paralysis and small uh, and medium-sized tasks with low payoffs that are just essential to daily life that are just really hard to do. Uh, the other talks about the inbox of shame, messages piling up that you just don't want to respond to from, you know, weird family members or friends that you just don't necessarily want to to talk to. And the conclusion that the author comes to is that 
millennials are raised, they're raised with the idea that they should be working all the time. And that even finding ways of relaxing or getting out of working are still always coached in the in this subconscious language of optimization. That, you know, meditation or self-care, which has become a massive industry, all of these things are this sort of work hard, play hard mentality that leaves us no room in our lives for anything that's not work or play. Because even play becomes work because it's meant to be, you know, an, an, an offset for work. And, and the other argues pretty in a, in a pretty nuanced way, I think, that the source of this is complex. Part of it is economic and material where businesses become more efficient and, we, you know, we were raised and have become by necessity more efficient trying to match businesses to become more successful, that we're trying to be more productive, you know, being on email at all hours of the day, coming in late, uh, coming in early, or sorry, staying late or coming in early, and that we were sort of meant to inherit this economic world that would be better than our, than the previous generation. But realities like the 2008 crisis broke a lot of those expe- expectations and made things a lot harder in many ways. And we also live in this environment of you know Facebook and social media and envy where people display their their relaxing life that we think our goal is to be working as hard as we can so that we can finally get that life. And the result of this is burnout which he defines as physical or mental collapse caused by overwork or stress. And that's different than exhaustion because with burnout, you keep working past that. You feel burnout when you've exhausted all your internal resources, but you still have the compulsion to keep on working. And there's a really interesting quote uh, that is, uh, quote, one of the ways to think through the mechanics of millennial burnout is by looking closely at the various objects and industry our generation has supposedly killed. We've killed diamonds because we're getting married later or not at all. And if and if or when we do, it's rare for one partner to have the f- financial stability to set aside the traditional two-month salary for a diamond or engagement ring. We're killing antiques, opting instead for fast furniture, not because we hate our grandparents' old items, but because we're chasing stable employment across the country and lugging old furniture and fragile China costs money that we don't have. We've exchanged sit-down casual dining, Applebee's or TGI Fridays, for fast casual, Chipotle at all. Because if we're going to pay for something, it should either be an experience worth waiting in in line for, like cronuts or world-famous barbecue, or efficient as hell. And this all sort of rounds out in the idea of adulting, which is a term that I know that I've used, my wife has used, and viewing the actions of being an adult as a series of actions and not as a state of being. Even leisure, leisure becomes a project, a task that we have to work to do. We take things that should be enjoyable and put them on a checklist of things to work out, and it intermingles them with other obligations and infuses them all with this vague sense of bitterness. And the author offers no way out, but I thought it was a fantastic article that was a good nuanced take against millennial stereotypes um, that I identified with. Um, and anyway, I, I thought it was pretty accurate. Yeah, certainly. I, I got the chance to, to read through it as well, and I thought it was a very well well done piece, well argued, um, and, and like you said, uh, quite nuanced. Though, for the record, I'm I'm currently dancing on the grave of the diamond industry. I think it's uh, kind of a, I, after I saw Blood Diamond, it, it, it was over for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I, I think she does bring up an excellent point in that life as a ever growing to do list the inevitable consequence of that is going to be burnout. The fact that you're not getting anything done, there is no light at the end of the tunnel. You're, there's only a lengthening to-do list. Of course, that the natural conclusion of that is burnout. I, I recall in college, you know, I would I'd be studying for you know the nth late hour in a row, averaging you know six or five hours of sleep. But 
always in my mind, it was, okay, just think you've got a week and a half left. Finals week is almost here. Just get through that. And then you can sleep for days on end. It'll be fine. And everything will be okay. And indeed it was the, the to-do list had a logical ending. And I think that has been the majority of millennial life has always been, there's been a to-do list. There's been a thing, a, a checklist that you can check off and eventually it will be done and complete and everything is fine. And then we get out to the significantly less structured adult world. And we find ourselves unable to cope with the idea of kind of radical freedom. Like we're able to do whatever we want and we're paralyzed by that. I remember that was one big thing that hit me when I, when I came out to Seattle was the paralysis of having absolute freedom to do whatever I want, whenever I wanted. And inevitably it was too much. And so I kind of shut down. I also very much uh, identified with her uh, inbox of shame of, uh, you know, emails piling up that I intend to respond to or those annoying, you know, just stupid tasks that you just don't want to do where you go. And like even something as simple as getting a haircut, which it's a half hour, it needs to happen. Mm -hmm. But there's just something about it that you just don't want to do because it takes time. Um, It takes time. It takes 20 bucks. Exactly. And so I, at, at first I was a little skeptical. I think I'm still a little skeptical on some of her points, but on the whole, very well argued, very well, very well written. Hmm. I think the, uh, I mean, not to be entirely flippant, but slightly so. We don't, millennials, and I'm only vaguely identifying with one, because I'm right on the line between millennial and iGen, which means I get to claim partnership in both and, you know, be a commenter <laughs> on it. Um, not with us, you against us. <laughs> generational warfare is the way to go uh, <laughs> is that we i we don't have a good idea of what it means to live a good life we don't have a a role to play we don't have a script to follow and you know s- scripts can be dangerous and scripts can be toxic and constraining and whatever but they can also provide meaning and order and a pattern to a world that is manifestly chaotic and we need that kind of thing sometimes. Mm-hmm. And to pull right from McIntyre, we don't have a clear telos about what it is to live in the world. And we have people like David Foster Wallace, for example, who you know tries to tell us that that this is water. But you know, daily life, it's hard to say that this is water if you don't even know that you're a fish or what a fish should be doing, for that matter. What, what um, the end goal of your fish existence is? Yeah, yeah, fishiness, obviously. obviously. Um. Yeah, so ties in somewhat in a depressing yeah. way. I, I think you know, cer- certainly, I think that that is very much a fundamental thing that we're lacking. They, you know, they're saying that we're we're a lonely, depressed generation, and certainly the lack of a narrative to insert ourselves into, the lack of an end goal to to strive for. Of course, that's going to result in existential dread and suffering and depression and burnout and whatnot. I, I think that is certainly the logical conclusion of that. I, I think also, I, I, I was discussing with a coworker, it was almost a year ago, I think. Um, uh, she has a philosophy degree as well, and we were, we were talking, and she mentioned that there's kind of this idea of a philosophy of leisure, um, that leisure is actually a surprisingly important thing for any society, rich or poor, you know, third world, first world. A society needs a certain philosophy of leisure, and I, I'm inclined to agree with her. This is, leisure is where uh, theology is done. Philosophy is done. You, it, it's more difficult to philosophize, you know, when you're working out in the farm than when you're, when you're sitting down. Although, uh, I can't say that from personal experience, but being able to codify these systems is very important. And 
when we don't have an, a very good philosophy of leisure, when leisure is viewed as a waste or whatever, when instead we need self-care instead of leisure, I, I, would, I, would, I would venture to say that that becomes an issue um, if we're afraid of sitting down quietly and contemplating. Uh, and instead, we need to go do something. We need to go check something off our list. I think that becomes an issue. Like, uh, for example, sitting down quietly and reading an article? Precisely. And, uh, and this week, I sat down and I read The Taste of Strawberries, Tolkien's Imagination of the Good, um, written by one of my old uh, college professors, uh, Dr. Bill Bro. I, I say one of my professors very loosely. I never actually had him for class, but I interacted with him a few times. And I heard him give the speech, or at the very least, a speech that was very closely related to this article, and all, respected him all the more for it. And I, I have gone back to it time and time again um, during my my sojourn out to Seattle. So, the, and the article is primarily concerned with the, as it sounds, uh, the ability to imagine goodness as captivating, as desirable, as something that it well is worth imagining. Um, and so it, he opens up with this quote: uh, "Near the end of the Return of the King movie." While Frodo and Sam are making the arduous climb up to Mount Doom to destroy the ring once and for all, their strength fails and they stop climbing. Sam claws himself over to Frodo, takes him in his arms, and asks him this poignant question. Do you remember the Shire, Mr. Frodo? It'll be spring soon, and the orchards will be in blossom, and the birds will be nesting in the hazel thicket, and they'll be sowing the summer barley in the lower fields, and eating the first of the strawberries with cream. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? Frodo weakly replies that he can't, but Sam's recollection of the Shire's goodness and beauty gives him new determination, and he puts Frodo on his back and begins once more the climb uh, to climb the steep slope. Do you remember the taste of strawberries? He then asks us. Uh, Sam's vivid memories of the Shire heartens him and gives him hope, even during the darkest moment of their journey. And this is the, the reason Bilbro opens up with the scene as par excellence example of the imagination of the good is that his thesis is that it is far easier for us humans to imagine evil, uh, citing, for example, Joker from The Dark Knight, Walter White from Breaking Bad, or the iconic Darth Vader from Star Wars. Um, whereas it is far more difficult to provide good characters or landscape or images or what have you. Uh, consider the sappiness of Hallmark movies, the insipidness of most Christian movies, the blandness of Paradise and even Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. Uh, to quote Cornelius Planinga, Dante knew his business when it came to depicting evil. His inferno boils with hot life, but flopped when he tried to portray goodness. He turned Paradise into a theological meringue full of simpering saints and characterless angels. Uh, Bill Bro goes on to quote C.S. Lewis in his discussion of Paradise Lost, uh, quote, to make a character worse than oneself is it is only necessary to release imaginatively from control some of the bad passions which in real life are always straining at the leash, the Satan, the Iago, the Becky Sharp, within each of us. It's always there and only too ready the moment the leash is slipped to come out and have in our books that holiday we wish to deny them in our lives. Uh, in essence, this is the problem with our imagination. The stories of good community, noble characters, shalom in general, they're all too, all too often boring, vapid, and just downright dull. But here's where Bill Road takes heart in Tolkien. Quote, the Shire is a delightful place with its hills, its round doors leading into snug holes, its greenness. Rivendell is truly magical with its waterfalls, its sheer cliffs, and the rites of its elven inhabitants. The white city shimmers with life and glory in the morning sun. They are good, but they are not boring. And I think it's worth noting, uh, noting well how powerful these sorts of stories are. Uh, we've mentioned Howarwas, Stanley Howarwas uh, a few times on this podcast, I think. And his contention is that society, the society that has forgotten how to tell stories is a society that has forgotten how to pass on virtue. 
But a corollary of this claim is that we must know how to tell good stories, compelling ones that make the good actually desirable. Bilbro acknowledges this throughout the article, and I would encourage uh, a reading of the full thing, but um, he closes with this, with this particularly poignant quote. Uh, Even the dream of soundly defeating an atheist college professor in a a debate about the existence of God is not rich enough. Uh, God's not dead. For those of you who haven't seen that movie, don't bother. Uh, Marriage, children, and evangelism are all part of the good to which we are called. But to make this good beautiful and desirable, we need to see it imagined in particular vibrant communities. We need to be able to taste the first strawberries of spring. We need a fully incarnate imagination of the shalom that we seek. Our task, then, is to cultivate places and communities and art in which the kingdom of God becomes imaginable. For if we keep our feet under us, if we hold in our memories the shalom toward which we aim, then in all of our journeyings, we may yet, as Sam tells Frodo, see our friends in our home again. We may yet. Damn, that's good. It's a a beautiful article, uh, one that encourages desiring the good. And I I think any, any sort of article that reminds us of that is well worth reading. It's hard to imagine off the top of my head another book that describes the good or good things in a way that makes you want to desire them and go for them over adventure. I don't know. Like, there's the life is an adventure, obviously, to an extent. We have to overcome hardships and such. But there's a, a, a prayer in the Catholic daily reading. I think it's in the morning. That's the Zechariah Canticle. And part of it talks about how. You know, you have fulfilled the promise to Abraham and to his descendants, freedom to live and worship you in peace. And that being the fulfillment of the good or the good life and the simplicity of living and reading, writing, praying, worshiping peace is something criminally un- underrated, I think. Yeah. Uh, so there's a there's a quote that kind of uh, sums sums this idea up. Uh, Simone Weil, um, great uh, great philosopher back in the day, 1920s. I think uh, Sartre or Sartre, however you pronounce his name, uh, kind of said of her that uh, she she was one of the very very few, if not the only person he seriously respected. Um, and she had a, a brilliant quote: "Imaginary evil is romantic and varied. Real evil is gloomy, monotonous, barren, boring." Imaginary good is boring. Real good is always new, marvelous, and intoxicating. And I think that there is something, there's something very true about that in any author that reminds us how new, marvelous, and intoxicating good is, is certainly worth, uh, worth reading. Um, and Tolkien is certainly one of them. Uh, but speaking of uh, imaginary good and evil and real good and evil, uh, these sort of things causes one to rant. So Brevin, what, what, what rant do you have this week? So I actually have a uh, a positive rant for the first time. Oh, excellent. Um, and the topic of my positive rant is uh, David Foster Wallace. Yes! He, he's pretty neat. Uh, eloquent, biting, uh, humorous. Uh, Stephen has been on my back forever to make me listen to This Is Water commencement speech he gave at Kenyon College. And I finally listened to it, and it was great. Um, and I even went and read an, an article or two of his on Stephen's recommendation. And uh, they were all really good. So now the only task is to resist reading Infinite Jest that just kind of glares at me from the shelf over there. But yeah, uh, Stephen Wallace is good. You should read him. I recommend. <laughs> he, he is very good, and I, I can certainly sympathize with Infinite Jest at you. It was staring at me for three or four months before I finally got around to, to reading it, and it is a, a weighty tome, but it is it is well worth the read. Yeah, uh, well, uh, I, I, I hear that reading Infinite Jest can be an infuriating affair. But before I get there, uh, Stephen, did did you have a rant? 
perhaps? I I did indeed, although I totally forget what it is. Sorry, uh, just a sec. Let me let me let me think uh, for a quick second. All the while, my internet is ticking. Um, shoot, I cannot think of what my rant was. Oh my gosh, I had a good one. Oh no. Yeah. Ah, oh, what's going on? Where did my mind go? What do you hate, Stephen? Um, good question. What does one hate? Uh, bureaucratic nightmares. Um, yourself. I hate forgetting things. Mm. Okay. Uh, okay. Um, actually, I, I think I have one. Um, so uh, the, the the rant I have is it's a mixture of positive and negative. Um, so over the past uh, few years, I've had quite a quite a few weddings that I've gone to. Uh, one of the notables being uh, the our our podcast. One of the notable ones being our podcast friend uh, Brevin uh, and one of my older friends Ansley. Uh, those two participated in holy matrimony, and honestly, it's been it's been a delightful couple of years being able to celebrate with some of my uh, dearest friends. But is it it is a strange thing um, whenever I tell coworkers, you know, oh, I'm going to another another wedding this year or, or this week or whatever. I have another wedding tomorrow, so this is why it came up. Uh, I, I mentioned it to some coworkers and. They're always kind of shocked that uh, that these we- that, that th- these weddings are just consistently happening, and it was mentioned in uh, your article, Brevin, um, or not your article, but uh, the article that you presented, um, that millennials are are kind of getting married uh, later and later in life, and that they are or just simply not getting married at all. And I, I guess it, it just strikes me as first of all, a delightful thing that so many of my friends are able to participate in this and that the, there is kind of still this notion of marriage as important, as sacred. Um, and I love that. But I guess I, I just, it just strikes me as kind of sad that our generation has so much walked away from it, viewing marriage as burdensome or not worth it um, or somehow a surrender. I have quite a few friends that um, would kind of, their, their mantra would be, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pursue a relationship. I'm not interested in it um, because, you know, I'm, I'm working on myself and it, it on, on the one hand, there is something very solid about that. There is this idea of, well, I want to make sure that I'm ready, that I can, I can, you know, be ready for, for, or emotionally mature enough to enter into a relationship. And I totally respect that. But all too often, it just strikes me as kind of chinning out on something that is life-giving and beautiful. And just, it, it just kind of saddens me that our generation has, in general, kind of taken a step back from it, and it's being viewed as not worth it. And f- f- at least from, a, from an outside perspective, looking at it, it, it still looks well worth it. And I, I would contend that our generation would do well to maybe give that a uh, second consideration. I mean, uh, speaking as one who personally is married uh i would say uh 10 10 out of 10 uh definitely would would get married again so man that is a that is a positive review right there (laughs) it is a uh five stars out of five on Um, (laughs) amazon.com can't go wrong mail order marriage gets here in two days prime shipping uh comes with full heavenly blessing and uh come with a priest to bless it or does that happen in advance well, no, they just deliver it. The uh, whatever denom you want is subcontracted out to drop it off. I mean, yes, okay. I want I want my pa- my uh, my pastor to be non-denom, uh, wearing a uh, a t-shirt uh, with a suit, you know, kind of etched on it, and uh, for <laughs> How about- for him to spontaneously uh, give the entire sermon. I don't want him to have given any amount of preparation. How about this? What if it's a it's a tracksuit that's painted 
like paint like not like designed but it's a track suit that's painted with a suit on it i feel like that might be perfect more. yeah yep can you have yeah. a hat on that's like slightly tilted so it shows how cool he is and, well yes yeah and he needs a, a hebrew tattoo Yes, absolutely. It, it has to be in, in Hebrew. It's misspelled, but no one who loves him will tell him because then he'll feel really, really bad. Um, <laughs> it's the Hebrew word for, like, lunch. <laughs> he got scammed in downtown Jerusalem when he went there for pilgrimage. <laughs> you got to think, like, how, how many of those weird tattoos are actually accurate? I mean, I imagine some people doing their research and actually looking up whatever whatever word means, whatever thing, and then going to it, but... You have to imagine that countless no, no. people have gotten tattoos of foreign languages that are. Just I know someone off. who has a Hebrew tattoo that's missing whatever the Hebrew version of an apostrophe is, and it's just really? a totally different word. Yeah, like one small mark up in like you know the top right of the word changes the entire meaning of the phrase, and he doesn't have that's that. Nice. And so his tattoo is not meaningless, but definitely doesn't mean what he wished it would mean. <laughs> oh, poor bloke. That's what I demand in my pre-blessed uh, wedding. Pre-blessed weddings, uh, pre-blessed food. God bless American theology. God bless American theology. And for two poor fellows without Telos here, uh, we now say goodbye. Uh, I'm Brevin. And I'm Steve. And this has been The Problem with Reading. See you next week. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Last left our heroes. They were there in the tomb of Kublai Khan. Wow, they were there. It's terrible. <clears throat> when we last left our heroes, they were trapped in the tomb of Kublai Khan. The Kaiser was hot on their heels, and they no longer could trust William, who had been revealed to be a French spy. As no one can trust the French, what will our intrepid heroes do in the tomb of Kublai Khan? <laughs>